Well, good morning. It's so good to see you once again. Merry Christmas. If you're not in the Christmas spirit yet, I promise you will be by the end of the month, okay? And if you came to the polar party yesterday, you're probably already there, though we got the party without the polar. I mean, it was the best one ever, wasn't it? 65 degrees, we're having a Christmas party. Guys, I want to say thank you, as Jeremy did, to the hundreds of people that made yesterday possible, the way you served our city, the way you blessed our city, guys, living proof of a loving God to a watching world. That's what happened yesterday as thousands of people came from all over our city and were generally blessed by your kindness and generosity and the way you served them all in the name of Jesus. We're beginning a brand new series. I hope that you'll invite somebody seriously to our Christmas Eve service. You know, statistically, mathematically, the probability is an all-time high. Those people in your life that are far from God that need the gospel, the chances of them coming with you are probably better than ever at Christmas and Easter. So let's leverage the moment as we begin a new series today in Luke chapter 15 entitled, Who Needs Christmas? And so it could be that you feel a little bit like this guy at times during the Christmas season. And you're asking honestly, who needs Christmas? When you go Christmas shopping at the Summit Crossing and you're in that holiday traffic and they've completely messed up the flow of traffic and you wonder why you're going in circles, you're thinking, who needs Christmas, right? You're wondering when you have to park like 14 miles away from Independence Center to get that one gift at the last minute. Who needs Christmas? I used to think that a time or two, honestly, years ago, early in our marriage. I'm very idealistic about things. I grew up with real trees in my home. And we would go out and cut the tree down. We had real trees in my house growing up. So when I got married, we're gonna keep the tradition alive and we're gonna have real Christmas trees and art and trees in our house. And I'm telling you, after years of having real trees and me getting frustrated and irritated and frankly just in the flesh, going, who needs Christmas? Because you can't get that tree to stand up straight. Have you noticed? No matter how hard you try, no matter where you turn it, it's still lopsided. So I finally decided we're just going with a fake tree. And so we do. We have a fake tree now, but I've been a better dad ever since. I mean, unlike this guy, you know? Uh, who needs Christmas, right? Well, the reality is what we're going to learn is everybody needs Christmas. We all need Christmas. In fact, Jesus said, we're the reason for the season. Now, often you hear at this time of year that Jesus is the reason for the season. And who could argue with that? Yes, Jesus is the reason for the season, but did you know that Jesus said, we're the reason for the season? As a matter of fact, in Luke 19, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost, and that is really the reason for the season, that 2,000 years ago, the Son of Man, that messianic title for the Son of God, the promised one, he finally did come, and if you were the only one, Jesus would have still come, and that is the real reason for the season. This celebration we call Christmas is a celebration of the the incarnation. What is the incarnation? It's about a miraculous conception that the God of heaven came down, laid in a manger, the Messiah, for no other reason except to hang eventually upon a cross. You see, it's the fulfillment of all the prophecies made about the promised one we call the Christ. It's the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14, written 700 years BC. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. You see, Jesus is a name that means savior. Emmanuel is a name that means God with us. You see, Jesus was God with us who came to save us. 
You see, Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation that God became a man to become our sacrificial lamb, the one who was from infinity and eternity. He came down as humanity in infancy for one reason eventually, to shed his blood at Calvary for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And do you understand that if you were the only one, Jesus still would have come. And that's the theme of Luke chapter 15, to illustrate the heart of God, to redeem even one. Jesus is going to tell us about three stories, three parables. The story of the lost sheep, the story of a lost coin, and the story of a lost son. And his audience this day in Luke 15, as he's preaching, is actually the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Let's pick it up right here in Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now what's amazing to me is that in any generation and from whatever millennia you've lived, tax collectors have always been considered the worst of sinners. I mean, did you notice? I mean, really. I mean, the tax collectors and the sinners, they drew near to him. Now, understand, Jesus would have been a friend to the IRS. Can you believe that? That's weird, isn't it? I mean, now here's the reality. If you're a member of the IRS, we're just kidding. Kind of. In Jesus' day, a tax collector was considered an extortionist. They were thieves, literally, all right? It was lawful for them. They had the power of Rome behind them, and legally, they could exact any tax on anyone that they wanted to, and all they had to do was give Rome their cut, and whatever Rome said we want, and anything off the top they could keep for themselves. And so they were hated by the common people. They were considered the worst of sinners, thieves, extortionists. And then sinners, you know, you got the tax collectors and sinners. The sinners were people who had been cast out of the temple. They were kicked out of the church, so to speak. You know why? Because they were known to be prostitutes or the sexually immoral. I mean the perverse, the worst of people, right? And they're drawing near to him. Now listen, what we're going to learn here is there's more joy in heaven when even one sinner repentant comes to Christ and receives redemption than any other place on earth. So, you know, Christmas is a time of celebration. We're celebrating the incarnation without which we had not have this hope of redemption. And so that's why, you know, you might have gotten one of these. We got some things to celebrate today, don't we? Yeah? Hey, we got to have the best party ever as those that were once lost that had been found. So, you know, in church, when you hear somebody say something that you really agree with, you sometimes hear somebody say amen. So, instead of saying amen today, when you hear something that you really agree with, that resonates in your spirit, just go ahead and go. Okay, you get it now. You get it. You got it. All right? We're going to have a party today. Okay. We got a lot to celebrate, don't we? You know what I think is amazing? I mean, the, the most amazing thing about Jesus, now understand, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're criticizing him. They always leveled accusation against him. They were complaining. You know why? Because Jesus eats with sinners. I mean, look at him. He receives them. I mean, he's a friend of sinners. I mean, this was scandalous. But you know what I think we ought to celebrate? Listen, what makes Jesus so irresistible is what we learn here is that people who weren't like Jesus liked Jesus, and Jesus liked them back. Yeah. 
I mean, this is what made Jesus so irresistible, unlike the Pharisees that were very resistible because they considered sinners reprehensible. Notice the people that were drawn to him were the sinners. You know why? Because the, the ones the world had cast out, God wants to pick up. And Jesus is the embodiment of all the heart of God. We're learning here about the heart of God, the heart of God to redeem everyone as he is indeed the promised one. He is God's son, and Jesus came for even just one. And you see, that's why Christmas is such a time of celebration, because it's remembering this redemptive plan that God had to redeem fallen man. Now, what I find interesting here, guys, is this. Jesus was holy. He was sinless. But he's a friend of people who are sinful. Now, understand the difference. Jesus was never a friend of sin, but he was a friend of sinners. You see the difference? Now he's getting criticized because he's a friend of sinners. Even though he's not a friend of sin, he was still a friend to them, and they're criticizing him. And this is what I find amazing. Jesus liked people that wouldn't like him. They liked him even though they weren't like him, and he liked them back. I mean, here's the holy, sinless son of God. Understand, Jesus never, ever sinned. You know why he never sinned? It's what we celebrate at Christmas called the incarnation. He was born of a virgin, a miraculous conception. And because he was born of a virgin, he did not have an earthly father's seed, and because he did not have an earthly father's seed, he did not have an earthly father's sin. He was not born then of the seed of Adam. He was born of the seed of the Holy Spirit. He had only one nature. He was holy through and through. Unlike you and me, fallen humanity, we have this sinful condition, which is why it's easy to fall prey to temptation. But you see, ultimately, Jesus was sinless, and he's hanging out with people who are sinful. And you can see why to the Pharisees now, this was scandalous. You see, the Pharisees were the religious people. They were the church people, we might say, of his day. And understand, Jesus always leveled accusation against them. You know what he said? You hypocrites. I mean, you look good outwardly, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy. And you keep the punch list outwardly, but you don't know that inside, even though outwardly you look holy, you're not holy. You're dirty, just like everybody else and in need of redemption. And you you see, that's what's going on here. You've got the Pharisees who look good outwardly. They're now bringing accusation against Jesus because he's hanging around people who are unholy. But this is why Jesus was so irresistible. Now, here's the deal. What's true of Jesus personally should be true of us individually and true of our church corporately. Sometimes we think, well, if I'm really a Christian, then when it comes to sin, I ought to be filled with righteous indignation. To which I would say, yes. Hey, sin makes God mad. It makes God angry. Uh, Jesus went to the cross for one reason, because of sin. And all of our sin was placed on him. And indeed, sin ought to fill us with some righteous indignation. But here's the deal with Jesus. He could be filled with righteous indignation, but still full of grace and compassion. And that is why he was never a friend of sin, but he was indeed a friend of sinners. And I want you to see, the people that followed him and drew near to him, they were the sinners. Who were the people that hated him and leveled accusation against him? The religious people, wasn't it? You know what that tells me? Listen carefully. People who aren't like you, if you're a Christian, should like you, and you should like them back. The more you're full of Jesus. That's what makes you a contagious Christian, yes? 
Now here's the deal. It doesn't mean it's gonna work that way every time. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, it says this, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That means there's gonna be people in your life, they don't like you because you're a Christian. They don't like you for what you stand for. They don't like you because what you follow and what you believe. And there's people at times that didn't like, it's, it's hard to believe, somebody didn't like Phil. I mean, little huggable, lovable me, all right? But I'm just saying, sometimes they got a different spirit than the one that works in you. You understand what I'm saying? So it's not about being liked by everybody because there's gonna be people who don't like you because you're a Christian. There are people that didn't like Jesus and he was the holy, sinless son of God. So what chance do you have, right? But here's what I am telling you. Sometimes what we learn here in this text is sometimes the reason people don't like Christians is not because we're like Jesus because we're like a jerk. I mean, really. I mean, sometimes, honestly, we're more like the Pharisees, aren't we? You see, the Pharisees were resistible because ultimately they were so hypocritical and they were so judgmental and they're always pointing out the splinter in somebody else's eye instead of seeing the log in their own eye. And you know, so consequently what happens is sometimes we think we're persecuted as Christians because we're like Jesus and the reality is we're persecuted as Christians because we're more like the Pharisees. So this is Leo Humphrey. Leo Humphrey was kind of one of my spiritual fathers in the faith many years ago. Some of you may remember Leo. He preached here years ago. Uh, and uh, I actually met Leo at a mission trip to El Salvador, January 1995. First time I ever met Leo. Leo was like an evangelist, missionary. He'd lead trips from the U.S. into Latin America. And that's where I met him in January 1995. Leo just oozed with Jesus. I mean, he really did. He's one of those guys, he just oozed out the love of God. I'll never forget meeting him that first trip to El Salvador after talking with him and working with him. For a few days, he looks at me one day and he says, Phil, you remind me of my son Kelly. I didn't know he had a son named Kelly. He had a son named Kelly. He told me the story. He died many years earlier in his 20s of cancer. He said, you remind me a whole lot of Kelly. He said these exact words. He said, Kelly was tall, handsome. Well, I'm not saying it's true, I'm just saying he said it, okay? That's just what he said. And um, I kind of, in some way, over the next 10 years, became a little bit of a son to him. He'd call me up, just kind of random, he'd say, hey, sweet man, only man in my life that could ever call me sweet man, but he, that was Leo, he could do that. It was just who he was, right? He just oozed sweetness all over everybody. And this is how I remember him. He's talking to this guy, street guy. This guy's probably intoxicated because he had a ministry very unique, not just in Latin America, but on the streets of New Orleans. It was a street ministry. He would minister the gospel to the pimps and the prostitutes and the cross-dressers and the places other people wouldn't go. Uh, and he'd go to the houses of prostitution literally and just share the gospel with these women. And I'll never forget a story he told me uh, that uh, just for, has forever stuck with me. So he used to go out and minister the gospel on the streets with another guy, had a partner, and they'd go out, and he told me that he quit going with this guy. And the reason he quit going with this guy is this guy would stand up to start to preach the gospel. I mean, they're street preaching. And understand, the crowd that would gather, they're the pimps and prostitutes and drug pushers and cross-dressers, and, and this guy would stand up, and he would start to literally 
shout at them and call them names and you're all a bunch of queers and you can imagine all the other stuff and the, you know, the crowd would start to get mad and they'd throw, he said, urine on them and they'd start cussing them and, and this guy really believed that he was getting persecuted for Jesus. And I'll never forget Leo saying, look, he wasn't getting persecuted for Jesus, he was getting persecuted for being a jerk. <laughs> yeah. And then Leo said, I just stand up and start telling him about the love of God. And that changed everything. You see, that's what's going on here. Jesus is trying to teach us the way to become a contagious Christian is ultimately you don't begin treating people like they're reprehensible. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were resistible because they considered sinners reprehensible. But Jesus was irresistible because he didn't consider them reprehensible. The Pharisees considered them untouchable and unlovable. And Jesus said, no, no, you're very touchable. You're very lovable. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The very reason I am here is not for the righteous that need no repentance. I'm here for them, even though they're walking in sin. And you see, that's what I want our church to be. And that's the kind of Christian that I want to be. Because if Christ lives in us, listen, twice in the Gospels, it says that Jesus was a man full of truth and grace. Now, you can't default to one or the other. It's easy to default to one or the other. This is the age where people have a distorted view of grace. What does that mean? All of a sudden, you have grace apart from truth. And so what happens is grace becomes a license for sin. Grace becomes enabling really bad behavior. You know why? Because unless you're walking in the truth of God, you can't walk in the grace of God, but that's where we live. We don't want the truth of God, but we want the grace of God. So it's easy now to default to grace. But here's the other thing. If you default to truth apart from grace, then what happens? You become like the Pharisees, proud, pompous, holier than thou. You think your stuff don't stink, and everybody else has the problem, and you don't. Hypocritical, hyper, hyper judgmental. You see, that was the Pharisees. Truth apart from grace is one thing. Grace apart from truth is the other thing. But Jesus, you see, was full of grace and truth all the time. Now, here's the deal. We're not God. Jesus was God. But we have God living in us. And that means the more we become like God, which is more we become like Christ, the more full of grace and truth we're going to have. It doesn't mean... It's not going to have some tension, and there's tension sometimes when you try to embody truth and grace at the same time, and it's not always easy, and it's not always sanitary, but this is what it means ultimately to be Christ-like personally, and all of a sudden, you start looking at people differently. I mean, the worst among us, the sinners among us, all of a sudden, they're not reprehensible. You start seeing what God sees and feeling what God feels. They're not reprehensible. They're not untouchable. They're not unlovable. And this is what made Jesus so irresistible. As Christians, we need to resist things that make Christianity resistible. As the church, we need to resist things that make the church so resistible. Listen, we're starting two new churches next year in our own city. You know why? Because only through church multiplication can we advance the Great Commission. That's how the gospel is advanced for 2,000 years. But do you understand what's happening in church life in America? For every church that begins new next year, there are four that's going to close their doors. And I'm convinced part of the reason why is not what's going on out there, but what's gone on in here for far too long. 
For far too long, at times, the church has been pharisaical. The church has taught, treated people like they're untouchable or unlovable because they're sinners. That's reprehensible. And I want you to see the church model versus the Jesus model. And I've shared this with before, before with you. I'm just going to remind you of a few things this morning. The church model historically goes like this. When they believe like us and behave like us, then they can belong to us. And that was the Pharisees. I mean, the Pharisees, it was like, listen, when you believe like we believe and you keep the same punch list of things to do religiously and all of a sudden you live like we think you ought to live, then you can be part of our club. You can come into the temple then. But if you don't believe like us and behave like us, you're cast out of the temple. You can't be among us. Now, I want you to see Jesus turned everything on its head, didn't he? He received sinners. You know what he did? He befriended them. He accepted them. He didn't accept their sin, but he accepted sinners. And so the Jesus model looks like this, belong, believe, behave. He gave them a sense of belonging. And because he gave them a sense of belonging, it changed how they believed. And when you change how you believe, it changes how you behave. That ought to be our goal as Christians, as men and women. Yes, we are times Christ-like with righteous indignation, but you're never more like Christ than when you're full of grace and compassion. And at times, I'm just convinced the church has lost its right to speak into the issues of our society, to speak into the issues of our day morally and spiritually because we've accepted a different paradigm, the Pharisees, instead of Jesus. I agree with myself. So about a year and a half ago, I'm uh, down in Jeff City about a year and a half ago, and I'm testifying for a bill that was meant to protect religious liberty in the state of Missouri. That's why I was there. In view of the Supreme Court decision to legalize gay marriage in all 50 states. So this bill is being presented to preserve religious liberty for churches or Christian-owned businesses that don't want to participate by religious conscience in same-sex marriage. So I'm there. If the church doesn't protect religious liberty, who's going to? And uh, so we're there, naturally, everything's running behind, everything's running late, the meeting starts three hours late. So we all get there, we're waiting around for hours for this thing to begin. And picture this, you're in a room, and you've got one side over here, the other side's over here. I'm on this side, and this is the other side. And on this side is members of the LGBT community, obviously, who have a different worldview, a different vision, different belief system than me personally. And on this side are all the people for this religious liberty bill, and on this side are the ones who are against it. And everybody's eventually going to testify in front of these lawmakers, and I'm there to testify for it. They're there to testify against it. You can imagine you could have cut the air with a knife, right? This side's not talking to that side. That side's not talking to this side. They're kind of whispering over there. Everybody else is whispering over here. So I decide I'm just going to cross the aisle, and I did. So I walk over and I, I sit down right next to some of them, obviously LGBTQ community, and um, I sit down next to them and kind of saw them do this. So naturally I did this. And I reach out my hand and say, hey, I'm Pastor Phil. I just want to meet you and introduce myself to you. And so we did. They introduced themselves and I introduced myself. And you know what? For the next 20 minutes, we had the best conversation where I genuinely sought to understand what they see, 
and to feel how they feel, their perspective. They asked me mine, why am I here? And one of the things I wanted to know is this. I asked, so, so what do you think when you look at somebody like me, a pastor of an evangelical, Bible-believing church? And you know what I walked away with? Here, here's what I walked away with. What they think is, honestly, we don't like them. You see, as Christians, we like to say, well, we love everyone. But here's the deal. If someone doesn't think you like them, how can they possibly feel you love them? You see the issue? See, here's what made Jesus so special. Here's what made Jesus so irresistible. He not only loved people, but he convinced them he liked those people. So what happens next is one of the men uh, get up to testify. The meeting's finally started, and this guy gets up from a very conservative denomination here in the state of Missouri. And the first things he says is he's getting ready to testify for this bill for religious liberty that never made it, by the way, to the ballot, but he's testifying for it. The first words out of his mouth is, I just want all the LGBT community to know that our churches love them. He said, we love them. We care about them. And when he said those words, I'll never forget the dynamics in the word. There was a spontaneous eruption of laughter from this side of the room. That laughter that said, yeah, right, you guys love us. Seriously, really. I mean, it was just spontaneous, like humorous. Obviously, whatever he said had rung completely hollow. It was empty. And then somebody on the panel that was interviewing those that were testifying asked this question of him. He says, really, you love the LGBT community, so let me ask you, how many of them go to your churches? How many of them would be accepted in your churches? Do you see why it rung so hollow? Now, I get up there a few minutes later to testify, and guys, the first words out of my mouth was this. I'm here to testify for this bill. But the best thing that's happened in my day, all day, is while we were waiting, I got to have a conversation with members of the LGBT community, some of which are sitting right behind me. And let me tell you, these are some of the most special and amazing human beings I've ever talked to. And I'm for this bill, but I'm not against them. And you know what? Nobody laughed, nobody said a thing. And I actually found out why. You know why they didn't laugh? Here's what it was. I talked to them. Now listen, I don't have it all figured out. This thing, grace and truth, and there are times I don't get this right. The tension always is within this conflict. Like, how can I fully embody truth and stand for truth, yet fully do it with grace? It's not easy, and it's not always sanitary, and that's why many churches just default to one or the other, and many Christians do too. But see, this is what we're learning. This is what embodies the heart of God. Jesus really was a friend to sinners, though he was not a friend to sin, and that's the kind of Christian that I want to be. That's the kind of church that I want to pastor. I want to pastor a church that would have a citywide Christmas party. I want to pastor a church that wants to bless every family of our city in some capacity. I want to pastor a church that's not full of church people. Yeah. 
Because the people that criticized Jesus the most, the people that hated him the most, guess who they were? They were not the sinners, the people that hated Jesus and lived with accusation against Jesus. Guess who they were? They were the church people of Jesus' day. You know why? Let's just be honest, because I've hung around church all of my life. I was practically born in the church. I'll probably die in the church. I was wed in the church. I have my funeral in the church. I'm a church kid. I'm a church guy. I know enough about church life to know some of the ugliest, meanest, nastiest people I have ever been around in my life are church people. It's no wonder the church is so resistible when we're so pharisaical. I mean, let's just be honest. We are so much like the Pharisees. I mean, the fussing and the fighting over the superficial and honestly, the shallow. I mean, we are so hard on each other. We judge each other for how we sing. We judge each other for how we worship. We judge each other for how we dress. We judge each other for how we look. It's no wonder that the world out there doesn't want anything about what's going on in here. You now you know why I don't want to pastor a church full of church people. I want to pastor a church full of Jesus people. And there's a difference. And if this is a church full of Jesus people, then guess what else? It's going to be a church full of sinners. And we'll know we're becoming more like Christ when our church is filling up with sinners. People who need to be found, but they're still lost because the church is to be a place of lost and found. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. And there's more joy in heaven over one person who's lost that gets found than any other time in any other place. Let me ask you seriously. When you think of the worst of sinners, do you feel compassion or condemnation? Uh, How do you feel when you see this guy? And that is a guy. It's Caitlyn Jenner. All right, now here's the truth. We gotta be about truth and grace. Here's the truth. And it's gonna make some of us uncomfortable because this is an age where truth doesn't matter and people don't wanna manage by facts. But here's the facts. Scientifically, medically, there is no such thing as transgender. You know why? Because gender is defined by your DNA. It's not defined by your sexual anatomy. This is basic seventh grade biology. Males get a Y chromosome, girls get an X chromosome. You can trade out your body parts, but you can't trade out your chromosomes. You can trade out some estrogen for testosterone, but you can't create, trade out your DNA. What does that mean? It means Caitlyn Jenner was born a male, he will die a male, he'll always be a male. He's just gonna be a man now that looks like a woman. That's the truth and those are the facts. But how do you feel about him as something different? Would you be a friend to somebody like him? Jesus would. He was a friend to all kinds of sinners. Amen by ourself. A few nights, a few weeks back, I don't normally stay up for Jimmy Kimmel Live or those late night shows. I watch the news and usually go to bed. So I'm watching the news and they're promoting what's coming up. There's gonna be this interview with Jimmy Kimmel and Caitlyn Jenner. I said, step, I wanna hear this. And here's what Caitlyn Jenner said. He said these words. He said, before I did this, I had to make sure God would be okay with it because I'm a spiritual person. 
That's what he said. Apparently he was in a church of all grace and no truth. <laughs> because grace apart from truth becomes a distortion. And that's a distorted view. God's not okay with that. But God loves him anyway, infinitely. And would do anything to redeem his soul eternally. See, there was a time, honestly, I'm just being honest, what God has done in my life in the last few years, there was a time I would have felt contempt. I don't feel contempt when I see Caitlyn Jenner. I can honestly say I feel compassion today because that is the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. You see, unlike the Pharisees, Jesus felt compassion, not condemnation, for the worst of sinners. And to illustrate his point, Jesus goes on and he tells the story of a lost sheep. And it goes this way, let's pick it up right here in verse three, it says, so he spoke this parable to them, saying, what man of you, having a 100 sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Now it's amazing, Jesus chose to use the illustration of sheep. You know why? The Bible's full of illustrations and analogies that people are like sheep. He's using an analogy here that every person of his day could understand. Sheep were absolutely an essential part of this ancient society in the Middle East of the first century. Sheep were used for wool. They were used for worship. They were used for food. They were used for money. I mean, this was an agricultural economy where your flocks decided your finances. And so he uses something everybody could understand here. And we are indeed sheep, and the Bible says we are the flock of God, and Jesus, of course, is the shepherd over this flock. Now think of why Jesus chose sheep as this illustration. First of all, like sheep, people stink. Yeah, people are stinky. They do, they stink. Every one of us stink. The only difference is Pharisees stink. They just think their stuff don't stink. All right, but they're stinky too. Look at somebody right now and say, you're stinky. Go ahead. And now go ahead and say it back, you, you are too. Trust me, you are. You, here's what the Bible says in Romans 3.10. There are none righteous, no, not one. Look at them and say, you ain't righteous. Now go ahead and say, you ain't neither. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, the Pharisees were just as stinky as the stinky people. The only difference is they don't know they stink. They don't know how bad their stuff stinks. Their stuff stinks like everybody else's stuff stinks. You know what, to God, our sin stinks. It's a stench in the nose of God. This is why Pharisees hated shepherds. Shepherds were the lowest on the totem pole of that day in terms of the class system of the ancient Middle East. You know why they were known as the stinky people? They needed their sheep, but the shepherds were not welcome because they stunk, they stink. And that's why Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. 
I mean, he would use terms the Pharisees could not have fathomed, they could not have imagined. Like sheep, people get lost without intending to get lost. It's well known that sheep will wander off without a shepherd. You know why? Because the grass is a little greener there, and the grass is a little greener there, and the grass is a little greener there. Next thing they look up and they're lost. The flock has moved on and they're all alone. Did you know that people get lost without intending to get lost? Nobody wakes up one day and thinks, you know, today I'd love to get hooked on cocaine. Today's the day. Nobody wakes up one day and says, you know, today I'm gonna have an affair and I'm gonna blow up my family and I'm gonna ruin my marriage. Yeah, let me do that today. It's one decision at a time. The grass is a little greener there, a little greener there. No little girl grows up going, I can't wait to grow up so I can be a prostitute. Nobody thinks that way. They just wake up one day and one decision after another, made apart from God, they're slowly walking away from God and next thing you know they realize, I'm lost and I don't know how I got here. You see, people are a lot like sheep. Did you know that like sheep, people are defenseless apart from a shepherd? Hey, you may be a super tough guy, but did you know that you are no match for the one that Jesus called a wolf? He's a predator. Do you know you are no match for the one Peter called a lion? He is a predator going about seeking who he may devour. Sheep are defenseless without a shepherd. And that is why Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The amazing story of God is that Jesus himself became like the sheep. He came in the form of humanity so that he could die ultimately at Calvary. You see, he's the good shepherd that laid down his life to give life to you and I. But a hireling, speaking of the Pharisees, he is not the shepherd. One who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. You see, religion is not the same as redemption. Religion is about control. The Pharisees were about control. You see, the Pharisees were about outward demonstration and outward modification. If you look like us and keep the same religious list as us, you can belong to one of us. But Jesus said, I haven't come to do that. The world doesn't need more religion. It needs redemption. People need transformation. You see, the hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. You see, Jesus was the true shepherd. He gave himself as our sacrificial lamb, and that is the story of Christmas. It's about God himself becoming a man so that he himself could be our sacrificial lamb. Isaiah saw this. 700 years before Christ was born. In Isaiah 53, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every single one of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus was guiltless. We are guilty. But at his trial, he made no defense. He said nothing. He willingly allowed filthy, sinful hands to nail him to Calvary for one reason, so that we could be redeemed. And there are all lost sheep and ultimately we've all been lost sheep at one time personally and here's what I want you to see listen carefully the average church in America I'm just telling you eventually the budget their money 
their ministry, it's all turned inwardly. It's all about keeping the 99 happy. This is the average pastor in America. Whatever I can do to keep the 99 sheep happy, that one sheep out there can go to hell as long as the 99 are happy. And I just have to be upfront with you. This church will never exist for those that are here. This church will always exist for all those that are still out there. I'm just telling church people, Pharisees, they're really hard to keep happy because it's all about them. And I love you and I want you to be happy, but if I have to choose between keeping the 99 happy and letting the one go to hell, I'm gonna choose to go after the one going to hell, whether or not you're happy. I'm just being upfront with you. The average pastor in America makes an unwritten, unspoken covenant with the people that as long as you keep giving just enough money to keep the doors open, I won't do anything or say anything that's gonna challenge your thinking or stretch you a little bit or send you on mission. That's kind of the unspoken covenant. And I'm just telling you, listen carefully, our church will never be just about the 99. It's gonna be about the one because the heart of God is for the one. You used to be one of the one. And then one day, you got found. And you see what Jesus is teaching is this, those that have been found have a mission to go seek the lost. The church is the ultimate place of lost and found. And for those of us that have been found, we have one mission, one reason to live, to help those that are still lost get found. You see, Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost, and now he says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. We have a mission now to seek and to save that which was lost, to help the lost get found. And there's more joy in heaven when even one of those lost sheep come back to him and come home again and find redemption. I say to you likewise, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over the 99 just persons who need no repentance. Today, we're gonna baptize several right here, right now. And there's a party going on in heaven. There is more joy in heaven over one of these. Today, we're gonna have a celebration. As the lost get found, God, thank you for letting us be a part of this great redemptive story. God, thank you that there was a day I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I asked Jesus into my heart about Two years ago, we were reading a story about how a little kid got saved, and I decided I wanted to also. And I felt him tugging at my heart, and so that's when I knew it was time for me to take my next step and become saved. I admitted I was a sinner, and I believe that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. You have to make sure that he's your savior and that he died for you, and you know he's real, and you know he's God. He saved me from my sins, and He is my King. That means I get to live with Christ forever and tell everybody all about it. Jesus is accepting, and He will not change, and everything else might, like friends might, your family might, nothing with God changes. He always loves you, and He's always there, even when you feel like He's not. 
He will um, be with you no matter what things you go through, what are bad or good. I was born into a religious family. I ran away from the faith that my family had, and I've found the faith again. And ever since then, I felt God pressing on me to get baptized. I feel like I've waited too long to get baptized, but it's never too late. Now is the um, time for me. I want to get baptized because I want to show people that I'm a Christian and that I'm a follower of Jesus. And I also want to show others that I'm a Christian. And I want to get baptized to follow in Jesus' footsteps. and Just to be whole again, um, start fresh, start new, uh, give my all, give my heart to Him. I want to show others that I've followed Jesus and Jesus got baptized and it's the next step in my walk with Him. I want everyone to know that Jesus is awesome and I need Him in your life.
sinner repents, when one lost get found. And to date, we've seen over 340 professions of faith this year. 340 people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I once was lost, but now I found. Was blind, but now I see. That's something to celebrate, isn't it? You guys are awesome. I love you so much. I'm so thankful for you. Hey, let's live on mission. Let's just seek and to save that which was lost. Be thinking about somebody to invite at Christmas Eve. The gospel is gonna go out in power. People need Jesus, yes? Let's live for him. God bless you, God go with you. Love you much.